Thanks for downloading this podcast. podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching iTunes for Radio Le Mans or visiting RadioLeMans.com. This is RS1, part of the Radio Show Limited Network. Welcome to the historic Racing News Radio Show. We start by talking to Gordon Murray and... I began by asking him about when he first arrived in the UK from South Africa and his early days at Brabham. I started uh, at Brabham, it was 19, the summer of 1970. Jack Brabham was still driving, that was his uh, last season. And the company was run by Ron Toranak and Jack himself. And uh, I was lucky enough to get a job as a uh, designer one of five people and it was only in 71 when Bernie arrived and ultimately took over the business and bought out Jack first of all and then Ron um, that I started working with Bernie and then within a year he'd fired the other four designers and kept me and given me a free hand to do a brand new Grand Prix car. When you came in and you were working with Jack Brabham and Ron Torinac that was really the the final knockings of that uh, that real engineer seat of the pants kind of design, wasn't it? Uh, it went on. Mm, it was it was one of the one of the last times that a driver was involved with designing the car. Definitely with Jack, because Jack was a good engineer, like Bruce McLaren was um, earlier, and. Um, but there were more, many more years after that before we got into telemetry. That was in the 80s, really. So the whole of the 70s was very much still seat of the pants, talking to the driver about setting the car up, what design improvements, getting the whole team involved. It was still very much down to experience in the 70s. And then, obviously, you moved into a much more high-tech world about uh, and, and ultimately of course we we have to talk about the fan car and and everything that that meant now with with that car it was it was never banned was it no not not strictly speaking no um we we actually had to we agreed to withdraw it in the end because bernie had a lot of pressure put on him by the by chapman rounding up the other constructors because he could see his 78 season slipping away with the ground effect um Lotus, and uh, we we agreed to withdraw the car. As a designer, how did you feel about that? Because you you must have gone through the whole thing. Yeah, I was pretty miffed. Great. I was pretty miffed because I could see us winning that season easily. I said to Bernie, every race we finish, we'll win. Basically, yeah. it was that stark. Yeah, it was just that much quicker than anything. Presumably, the CSI, being the governing body at that time, just didn't want everybody else to do a copycat car. Yes, they they, they wrote us a letter and said they would ch- we could run the car till the end of the season, um, but then they would change the regs to stop other people building cars in the second half of the season, basically. Obviously, we live in a world now where there are a lot of historic cars and and i'm sorry to say this but some of them are yours <laughs> I know, yes. and with those do you look back at some of the cars you've designed with more fondness than others i think the grand prix cars i'm pretty proud of all of them really um 
the, the Alfa Romeo years were least successful, I suppose, because the engine was very heavy and very thirsty. It was difficult to be competitive. But even those cars, I look back, well, the fan car was an Alfa car, of course, um, with some pride. Um, I liked all the cars, really. I have, I have favourites, obviously, but um, yeah, all, all the Brabants were pretty good and the three McLarens I did were pretty good, yeah. One of the Brabham's that you did was was obviously the low line mm-hmm. car, which was which was very very different. It was something which looked completely different from everything else, and would have gone on, in my belief, mm-hmm. to be absolutely groundbreaking. Well, it was groundbreaking, but we couldn't get. The, I, I made a huge mistake in laying the four cylinder engine over, and the heads wouldn't scavenge. Uh, we could never get the oil back out of the cylinder heads, and we tried all year with that. We struggled all year with that, um, and it just—it was never, it never got the results. But I knew from the aerodynamic work that it was dynamite. So when I went to McLaren and we had a V6, um, and Honda lowered the engine for me, um, I just did the same motor car with the V6, and it just—I mean, it was a second and a half a lap quicker than anybody. So with with that. Maybe that was a watershed time where suddenly you were getting a V6 designed for the car, mm. whereas perhaps before that, here's the engine get on with it. Would that be fair to say? No, I think, and I think it was a little more complex than that because we'd been using the BMW engine upright, and it was, it was, although it was fragile, it was quick. Um, and it was my fault for laying the engine over without solving the scavenging issue, really. The V6 Honda had been running quite successfully in Lotus before us, um, but they did lower it for us to make to make sure we kept the cam covers below the driver's shoulders because the driver was so lying down. With something like that, and, and obviously Colin Chapman, one of your design heroes I know, really started yeah, the, the low-line thing with the Lotus 25 with, with Jim Clark almost lying on his back. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't anything new. I just, I just, I, I certainly didn't invent it. I think our back angle in the 55 and the MP44 was very similar to the 60s one-and-a-half-litre cars. You know. One of the other things that you, you invented or changed was, was all about strategy in races. Pit stops. Yeah. Yeah, strategic pit stops, that's right, yeah. Did that come to you in a flash, or was it a... Yeah, it was, just, it was just an engineering calculation. It was a bit of arithmetic, really, because we knew the difference between empty and full tanks was a certain amount of time, and I calculated one pound of fuel was a hundredth of a second a lap. It was pretty proportional. And I thought, well, if that's true, and you start with half tanks, you should go whatever it was, 1.4 seconds a lap quicker than anybody. And then if you could put new tyres on halfway through, and you had that advantage as well, because, but of course the tyres had to warm up and tyre heaters hadn't been invented. So I invented tyre heaters <laughs> at the same time, so we had the double advantage. With something like that, I imagine that an awful lot of people said, Gordon, you're mad, uh, that we can yep. stop halfway through. Yep. Uh, and that must... I'm sure, being the groundbreaker that you are, that there must have been quite a few battles like that that you had. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was always pushing the boundaries. I mean, when we turned up with the fan car, people thought we were mad. In 81, when we turned up with the hydro-pneumatic suspension, people thought we were mad. And that won a championship. When we turned up in 82 with the car, the BD-52, with no side pods at all, 
we just I just dumped the side pods because we didn't have time to go to the wind tunnel much. Um, people thought we were crazy, but it won the championship. So, obviously, we've gone through all of that innovation in your racing life. Since then, you've done a number of things, and I know that you're particularly proud of, of your Ox vehicle, mm. which you've developed for what I suppose we call the third world. Yeah, yeah that's, that's the thing I'm most proud of, because it'll, it'll, have, it'll have a good effect on so many thousands of people's lives when it goes into production. And when will that be? We're talking to three different companies at the moment about production, so I'm hoping fairly soon. That would be a, a, a big step forward for, for Gordon Murray Design generally. Uh, yes, well, we're working, and in addition to that, we're working on another seven programmes as well with iStream, and any one of those, well, we, we should be very close to announcing one of them. Um, any one of those is going to make a big difference in the automotive sector. So you're still a, a busy man. Oh, busier than ever. Gordon, <laughs> well, thank you very much indeed thank for you. taking the time to talk to us. Really thank you very much. It. Thank you. Yeah. It was a fascinating time talking to Gordon Murray. He's got so many stories. He's been involved in so many different things. And we hope to hear from him again later in this season because he's got some big news about plans that he has for 2021 and 22, opening a big new um, factory and so forth. So we'll be getting back to Gordon in the, hopefully, the fairly near future. Paul, you've been doing some fairly good ferreting work and you've got a few thoughts on what's happening in the real world right now. Well, that's right, yes. It's never the busiest time of year, but we have had very recently the Walter Hayes Trophy at Silverstone, which is really probably the closest reincarnation of the Formula Ford Festival that used to be at Brands Hatch. And I can remember being there in the 1980s where you'd have huge crowds and an amazing two days of racing. There was a strong entry at Silverstone, 104 cars, which is quite remarkable considering everything that's happened so far this year. So uh, many thanks there to the hard work of James Beckett for putting all of that together. And they had a very popular winner in Oliver White, who's uh, been a victim of bad luck in the past and twice the runner-up. There was a great lead battle in the final before uh, five cars went off at Luffield. That's so typically Formula Ford, isn't it? (laughs) And um, brought out the red red flag. So the whole weekend really boiled down to a five-lap shootout where it was... uh, Chris Middlehurst and Oliver White were battling for the lead, but their dicing really just closed the field up and uh, Middlehurst was tipped into a spin, allowing White to win after, say, twice being runner-up. So fantastic for him finally to uh, get on the top step of that podium. I think we also do have to mention, and we, we did put it on our Facebook page, that uh, our best wishes go to Colin Turner, who was seriously injured in a multi-car accident in the last chance race. And uh, the Formula Ford veteran is still in hospital. We do have a link to his Just Giving page on our facebook page safe which is supporting his recovery and rehabilitation so uh, get well soon colin it's worthwhile remembering that uh, it's not just in the uk we do have things going on and uh, in new zealand the Formula 5000 tasman cup revival series kicked off and they were at uh, the manfield circuit chris amon actually last weekend and uh, there was a 13 car entry of the mighty five litre single seaters and uh, michael collins is the, the young hot shoe in, in New Zealand Formula 5000 really does see some of these quick young drivers coming through. These cars are pushed as hard as they were in period and uh, Michael actually managed to take pole and win the first race in his later GM1 and of course the GM is uh, representing famous Kiwi racer Graham McCray 
who by coincidence did exactly the same in one of his cars 48 years earlier at the circuit of the day. <laughs> but uh, what really amused me and what I'd love to have seen was that on Saturday morning, they had a handicap Formula 5000 race. It was a, they, they took the driver's best laps from the Saturday race, used them to reverse the grid and then set the cars off in six groups. So really it was the handicap. Collins charged through from the back to take sixth sorry to take fourth after the six laps but it was a uh, Shane Windleburn one in a Lola so uh, what a sight that must have been because a handicap race is essentially a race in reverse everyone starts off at different times but should finish together and you can imagine that last corner with a whole pack of Formula 5000 steaming around it oh that that sounds that sounds fabulous it must be the only time there's ever been a handicap Formula 5000 race I'm sure that's right so we've got events coming up include um, the HSR have their classic 12 at Sebring International Raceway in florida december 3rd to the 6th and um we're going to hear from a moment from jim roller how their previous daytona went went last month but uh one thing that's noting about daytona is uh, one of the stars will be uh, they've got the peugeot 908 hdi fap running and it's actually chassis 10 the car that uh, team orica used to win at sebring back in 2011 so that's a car going back to the scene of its victory when uh, Nicolas Lapierre, Loic Duval and Olivier Panis were actually in the car seat and I must one day tell you my story of when I tried to interview Olivier Panis because it didn't go well shall we say <laughs> I did not speak English um, it was very close to that to be quite honest but uh, yeah I'm not gonna I'm not gonna ruin a punchline we're seeing more and more organizations as well announcing dates for 2021 now hopefully we are seeing light at the end of the tunnel in how the world has changed in the last few months but uh you know i think we're seeing organizations you know if they don't book a date they're never going to run meetings so they are getting those dates in their calendar which is reassuring in the uk we've had the hscc announce nine meetings for 2021 plus they're obviously the organizing club for the silverstone classic and they're going to be starting at snetterton in april and uh, running as usual the way through to silverstone in october and Andy Dinkown, who's currently the chairman of the HSCC, actually said that like, they're not being able to predict where the UK will be with the COVID pandemic by next season, but they're hoping to run the full programme, and that's exactly what they're planning for. So uh, good luck to the HSCC. And similarly, um, Motor Racing Legends, we mentioned last time they were running the Donington Historic Festival next year, but uh, they're also running Thruxton's High Quality Meeting. They've announced that for the 12th to 13th of June. Um, they have a couple of races at the Classic and are going to be represented at the uh, Spa 6 Classic in October, which is, uh, you know, over the last few years has certainly become one of Europe's premier historic events. And uh, they finish up at Silverstone in October. And um, I'm also actually hearing rumours that we're going to get a historic meeting at Snetterton in August next year, uh -huh. celebrating 70 years of the circuit. Now, that's quite a claim, isn't it? Isn't it just? That's uh, that's quite something. OK, it's a very different circuit from the one it was 70 years ago, but but nonetheless the nicer <laughs> and the burgers. <laughs> uh, yeah, strangely, I was uh, I was talking to somebody this week about the dire catering that we put up with at circuits around the UK in the 60s and 70s. That it was it was unbelievably bad, and why we didn't all die of botulism, I've got no idea. But um, we were talking about the fact that the burger van at Brands Hatch was situated on the outside of clearways on the on the way in, just after the bridge, very handily right next to the gents' toilets. So it was, uh, you know, it, it was all very all very cosy. But well, uh, life was so simple, wasn't it? <laughs> it's good, isn't it, to see various 
dates in the calendar now which are must do historic events and you'd include obviously Goodwood Revival and Silverstone Classic but now we've got other things as well the the Thruxton Classic is coming up in leaps and bounds that was a great event this year um, which just was snuck under the radar in terms of all the various lockdowns and and things that we've had there but to see something like Snetterton beginning to do it yeah that's that's great I love it I think it's great the historic racing news radio show now I have to admit that I actually uh, spent some time watching the Turkish Grand Prix recently and uh, the qualifying on the Saturday on that wet and treacherous track with the cars just sliding around reminded me of a, a very famous Formula One qualifying session back in 1979 at uh, Watkins Glen. And uh, that was back in the days when the United States had two Grand Prix because they'd actually been at Long Beach much earlier in the season. And uh, at Watkins Glen, it was in October, so very autumnal weather. And on the Friday, it was very, very wet. And only mm, six yeah. of the 29 cars, and those were the days when you had an entry like that, um, ventured out. But, of course, one of those cars was Gilles Villeneuve in the uh, Ferrari, the 312 T4, for those who really worry about such things. <laughs> and it's it's become one of those qualifying sessions of legend because uh, Villeneuve was not only quickest, he was way quicker I've got some of the times in front of me here. We've got uh, Renny Arnoux, who I really, really don't think liked wet weather, but went round in three minutes, 46. Alan Jones, who was no mean peddler, two minutes, 37. Oh, wow. Uh, in the other Ferrari and on his way to the world title, uh, Jody Schechter did a two minutes, 11. But I think he really had to because Villeneuve went round in two minutes, one second. So that's uh, nine, almost 10 seconds quicker than anybody else out there. So and how, how much faster was he than Arnoux? Than Arnoux, that would be one minute 45 seconds. <laughs> yeah, OK, fair enough. You know, you, you, they're actually in Gerald Donaldson's excellent um, biography of Gilles Villeneuve, and certainly I think probably one of the best motor racing biographies ever written. Um, he quotes Nigel Roebuck as saying that, uh, you know, they were basically him and a number of the journalists actually just went out in the rain to stand at a corner and watch Gilles Villeneuve going past. You know, he said what he was doing was almost beyond belief. It just didn't seem possible. You know, he was, he said, apparently Jody, who was next quickest, said that he scared himself rigid. And um, Lafitte apparently was in the pit just laughing and saying he's just different. He's on a different level. <laughs> and was, wasn't it great uh, with that Turkish Grand Prix to see the cars dirty? I thought exactly that. I cannot remember when you last saw a Formula One car, it really took you back to those days of when cars would come in streaked with oil and dust and the drivers would take the goggles off and you'd actually have those um, you know, white patches around their eyes and the yes. rest of their faces would be blackened from having followed another car. And I cannot honestly think when probably when some, uh, you know, poor pit crew or whatever suddenly got told you better clean that. Yeah. What? Sorry. Well, no, we don't do that. Exactly. You know, it's maybe the odd bug or or something or other, but they were absolutely filthy at the end of it, those cars. They really looked like they had been in a proper motor race. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair comment. (laughs) Now, we mentioned Watkins Glen with respect to Jill Villeneuve recently, but uh, of course, our friend Jim Roller grew up near Watkins Glen. And uh, one day we have to tap him up for some stories of that famous track. But he was actually able to get down to Daytona for the Classic 24s at Daytona recently and uh, Paul Tarsi spoke to him about that fantastic event. Hi dear old chap, how are you? I'm well Paul, I'm very well and it's uh, wonderful to hear your voice even though 
it is through the internet and the ether and the magic of technology and digital broadcasting. <laughs> now, you traveled from your home in North Carolina down to Florida for the classic 24 hours at Daytona. That's that's quite a trip, isn't it? It's about eight hours uh, for for me to, to drive down there. Um, certainly, given the times, I didn't want to get on an airplane. Um, no. And so uh, for, for, for us in America, eight hours is, is a long journey. For you, it's uh, probably um, a lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. I mean, the, you know, in, in eight hours. Eight hours for you gets you to Italy. <laughs> yes, it does. It does. And it it'll never fails to amaze me when, when you and I are talking that you'll say, oh, yeah, it's just five hours. And that's, that's unthinkable for us and the other thing the other thing is that because we live in uh, a much more crowded nation we always talk about miles not hours because you can never be sure how long a journey is going to take so you know you say to me oh it's eight hours um whereas i would say it's 500 miles because that might take eight hours but it might take 10 or 12 or whatever it might be Yes, it could easily be a week, but uh, yeah. but a good trip down there. And um, how was Daytona? Yeah, it it was it, it was excellent, and um, it you know it was the best of times and the worst of times. Given the everything that's going on with the world pandemic and everything, it was wonderful that we had uh, the ability to pull off such a great event. Uh, unfortunately, the week of the event, we lost a, a great man in Gene Felton. Uh, and then shortly after the event, it was announced that one of the principals of HSR had succumbed to COVID uh, as well. And so um, that being Jim Pace. And so it was, uh, you know, for Gene Felton, he was a big backer of uh, vintage car racing. Uh, he was a, a man who raced a lot of big iron in the United States. He was a former Marine, and you could tell his signature leather boots that he had his driving suit tucked in and he was, as, he was as tough as nails, but he was a big old marshmallow on the inside because if you needed his help, he would be the first man to step up and, and help out. And of course, Jim Pace, uh, what a, what a wonderful story started out, uh, the classic American road racing success story. He started with, uh, the, uh, the Skip Barber Racing School, he raced in their program, then moved up to IMSA GTU. He was always a huge proponent of, of IMSA competition. He won the GTU championship. He won the GTU category of the Daytona 24 Hours in 1990. Uh, back then, we didn't have all the different categories of GT. It was you either, GT cars were GT cars. You either had one that was under three liters or over three liters, and he won the under three liter category. He also went on to win Daytona in a prototype uh, and was just very successful. In 2014 or 2015, he became an integral part of the running of HSR and one of the principals there. And with the loss of George Tuma a couple of years ago and now Jim Pace, my heart goes out to David Hinton and all the folks at HSR mm. who pulled off uh, an absolutely stunning event given what was going on around them, not only in the world, but the fact that they knew Jim was very ill at the time. And then uh, ultimately it was announced that he had, he had passed. But the field at Daytona, as you would expect, given the pandemic was, was thin, but the event didn't feel thin. And I, don't, I, I, I that's the best way I can think to articulate it because the, the vibe of the place uh, was 
still had a great event vibe because I think it was partially because everybody was so glad to be there. It was it was certainly different. Everybody, you know, with, with the exception of one or two teams, everybody was very diligent about wearing their masks and keeping social distance. We weren't allowed to interview anyone um, uh, on a microphone. Basically, we had um, for pre-race ceremonies, they had a different microphone for every person who was speaking. And so they went out of their way to make sure that everyone would stay safe during what was a, a great weekend of competition. I mean, there was great racing up and despite the fact that, that we didn't have any of the European cars there, you had all of the, the great American uh, cars were there. You had, um, you know, David, David Porter was there with the, with the Peugeot. Well, that's oh, a European yeah. car. It's a, it's a U.S. based car. Um, the, one of the big surprises was James Hagen was there with the, the, his Orica LMP2 car, the 2013 Orica in the livery, and he rolled in Tommy Byrne, <laughs> which was, a, which was a, a huge surprise. And when I talked to James about it, I said, how did you get the car over here? He says, well, I, I actually brought it over in February to try and run some events. And when COVID hit, I had to leave the car here. He says, so it was already here. So it was just a matter of getting myself over. And then I found out Tommy was available. And so I was able to get him into the country and, and here we go. And I was like, oh, that's fantastic. And first time I saw Tommy getting into the car, I, I thought to myself, oh, good heavens. Gosh, he looks old. <laughs> and I went, you silly git, he's your age, you're old too. So, but I tell you what, he hasn't lost a bit of pace. They gave, uh, they raced in, in Group F. And uh, while well, Group F went to uh, J.C. French, Joao Barbosa, and Tin Generum uh, for the second straight year, they were they were one of the repeat winners of the event. Uh, Hagen and Byrne, had they not had a couple of technical problems, would have been very very competitive. They ended up at the podium uh, a couple laps down, but they they were very competitive and and a lot of fun to watch. And uh, that's. They run at Daytona in the same way as they run at the Le Mans Classic, don't they? With different groups, each doing a, is it 47-minute race? Actually, 42 minutes this year. They've, they've found that uh, uh, to try and keep on schedule, um, this year they, they did it at 42 minutes, which gave them a little bit more time between each segment. You call them races or segments. It's... Uh, it's six, uh, it's seven, <laughs> here we go, typical racing, right? It's seven <laughs> groups in, uh, because they combine groups C and D. So it's actually six uh, sets of four right. segments for each of those uh, group categories. And they race 42 minutes and then off they go. They started at one o'clock with group F, which was kind of the feature group of the weekend um, because that's the, you know that's the, the probably the most other than the the Group E, which has got the Peugeot and the the Ligier JSP2 and the Extreme Speed livery. That's the XWEC car. Um, group F is kind of the premier. So they start that at one o'clock, and then we finished up at three o'clock on um, on on Sunday. So hold oh, hold wait. on, twenty four hour race starts at one and finishes at three. Yes, well, Mother Nature <laughs> did have to uh, play some games, and this is another opportunity that I'd like to take to congratulate not only the HSR folks, but the folks at Daytona. Uh, about 4.30 in the morning, uh, Betty and I were sound asleep, and all of a sudden the camper started rocking, and, and not for oh, good reasons. Yeah. 
Um, <laughs> and uh, it was, uh, we both kind of looked up and we woke up and the dogs woke up and we're like, holy cow. Uh, the wind was howling and the rain was just pelting down. And then all of a sudden the racetrack went very quiet. A transformer had blown up behind where our commentary booth is. Our commentary booth is in what used to be the old uh, Goodyear building, now called the Daytona 500 Club. Uh, well, the, the transformer behind that building blew up. It knocked out the top end of the paddock. It knocked out the tower. And that, of course, knocked out timing and scoring and all of the uh, corner worker stations. And oh, right. so they had yeah. to, yeah, they had to stop. Uh, and I cannot believe, I don't know if you've ever seen a transformer that blows up or have had no. one blow up in your neighborhood. Um, the fact that the the physical plant folks from Daytona were able to get that fixed uh, in two hours is a Lowe's and Fishes class uh, accomplishment. <laughs> and I, I you know, uh, the fact that they we only ended up with a two hour delay and they, the way they, they were able to work it out was is it was exactly a two hour delay. So it was easy for the teams to keep track. Just just move your schedule back two hours. And, right. and we finished at three o'clock and 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 it was great. And uh, uh, yeah, it was it was an absolutely fantastic uh, bunch of races. They had they had the usual sprint races, um, had a had a couple of cars that dominated in those uh, uh, Angus Rogers and, and Kevin Wheeler did really well in their Porsche winning every one of their sprint races. Um, the 45 car that I talked about earlier, the, the, the JC France Barboza general car, they, they won everything they, they, uh, they raced in. Uh, and there were many of the races that had uh, good competition right down to, to the end. David Porter and his, in his Peugeot, probably we would call him the overall winner of the event, given the fact that he was the, the fastest, uh, he completed 89 laps in the, uh, in the allotted time in two hours, 47 minutes, 22 seconds. So that certainly was faster than anybody else, but he had that uh, Ligier nipping at his heels pretty much the entire uh, 24 hours. Oh, really? Uh, so it, was, it, yes. wasn't a, it wasn't a, a clear win? Oh, well, I mean, it was, but but the the uh, Ligier was able to finish on the same lap with him. Well, uh, after four hours. So that's, yeah, that's, that's, uh, and only a minute, and 19 seconds back. It wasn't like he was about to be lapped. He was, he, he was definitely, he was definitely in the hunt. Um, the best race, however, had to be the, the, the race that ended the event. And that was uh, group G, uh, going into the final, the fourth and final segment. Uh, there were four cars that were, uh, all on the lead lap and all had an opportunity to win the race. David Russell and Brandon Kidd in their number 99 uh, Aston Martin Vantage won the category by about a minute and a half, a minute 45 seconds over Scott Key and Ron and Eric Zetza. Zetza and uh, the Zetza brothers and Key had probably one of the drives of the weekend. They spun on the very first lap, first time through the International Horseshoe in the first segment on Saturday afternoon. Uh, they spun with the, the race's defending winner, uh, the Camaro, Todd uh, Naparowski and Jim Warbritton. And Warbritton and, uh, and Naparowski never, re never recovered. They, they ended up six. They, they, they had other problems and could never recover. But the 351 went from literally dead last all the way up to second over the four hours. Won the third segment outright, um, but just didn't have enough to, to make it stick. 
in the fourth and final segment. But that was a fantastic and a and a and a fun and a fun group to watch. It sounds as if um, my my having the green eyes of the of of envy was well placed. I've, uh, as you know, you and I have worked together there for several years now, and I was green with envy that you were going, and I wasn't. <laughs> and I I feel much the same way. The uh, one of the things is that obviously the the Daytona twenty four hours itself didn't start until. 1966 and so therefore that's as far back as any of those groups go so we're talking about Lola t70s and ford gt40s and and those sorts of things as being the oldest cars that we'll see there and of course quite a few corvettes and things of uh of, of the the native ilk but i think you know it's quite interesting that probably because goodwood stopped its first life iteration in 1966. In Europe, we have an awful lot of historic formulae that go up to 1966, and the Daytona Classic actually starts at 66. But I think it's it's interesting, not in terms of where it starts, but where it finishes, and I'm not going to sing, but it's it's just how new some of those cars are, which always surprises me. Well, exactly. And that part of that is the HSR mindset, if you will. Um, some people don't take this wrong. I don't mean they are very pure in, in what they are, uh, but they are not purists when it comes to the field. If you want to come and race at the event, they will find it's a business. They will figure out a way to get you into the competition. Hmm. One of the things I like best about this event because of that philosophy is there is the opportunity now and again to see cars race at Daytona that in period we really wish they could have raced at Daytona, but they couldn't because of uh, racing politics or class discrepancies or, or whatever. And one of those is David Porter's Peugeot, which it was, you know, in period was 2010, which is now uh, almost 11 years ago. Uh, and so it really is an older car than we think about it being. <laughs> 11 it never... don't, don't be stupid. That's not 11 years old. <laughs> yeah, it's a 2010. The car is the 2010 factory car that finished second at Sebring and raced at Le Mans. Then they gave the car to Hugh Jashanak, and Hugh uh, won Sebring with it in 2011 and then competed as a privateer at Le Mans with the car. So the car has got great provenance but never got to race at Daytona. So to see that car race there is is absolutely uh, fantastic. Uh, Group A had all the cars you were talking about, the Lolas and the Corvettes and that sort of stuff. Jim Jim Cullen and Dennis Ostoff, uh, again, a fantastic performance by them. Uh, but kudos to Ray Evernham. Ray Evernham drove his Corvette uh, Roadster solo uh, and finished third. And wow. uh, he had a yeah he he had a, it was great to see to see him out there running but yeah the the and and Damon DeSantis and David Hinton in this uh, in the lime green uh, Lola it was a '69 Lola as opposed to uh, Cullen's '70 uh, uh, version uh, has a little bit bigger displacement uh, started uh, again way in the back of the pack and came up and, and finished second so. 
you know, like I say, there was uh, if if you went through if we sat here and, and went through class by class, I could tell you of great battles and great stories in every class. So it, it's Love worth that. going to uh, hsrrace.com and taking a look at the results and and pouring through some of the stories. It, it really was uh, uh, a weekend, Friday, Saturday and Sunday of, of great racing. Well, thank you for uh, for bringing those tales to us, Jim, and that's good to hear. Now, next month on the Historic Racing News Radio Show, you're going to be talking about a circuit which is very close to your heart, I think. Uh, yes, it is. Yes, it is. That would be Watkins Glen. I was uh, uh, I was I graduated from Watkins Glen High School, which is probably I think what you would consider secondary school in the uh, in the UK. Uh, I started out at the little local radio station there and started going up to the racetrack when I was 12 or 13 years old. Um, so it's a, uh, a place that's very near and dear to my heart. I don't know. We may, we, we may need to break it up into a couple of segments because I have some tales to tell. Um, and, if, <laughs> and in doing some, doing some research, uh, I mean, my family history goes all the way back to when they used to race through the streets there. Uh, my mom and dad would take my. I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't around then. I was just a twinkle in dad's eye at that point. But um, the uh, my my other siblings uh, would go when they raced. Uh, still raced through the streets, and uh, so it was uh, great times and part of my family heritage for sure. Well, we're looking forward to hearing that on the next edition of the Historic Racing News radio show. But uh, for now, Jim Roller, as always, an absolute joy to talk to you. Thank you for your insight as to the classic 24 hours at Daytona. And we'll find out all about Watkins Glen next month. Oh, that's, uh, I look forward to it. And uh, because we're part of the RSL family, do, do I have to make a llama reference? Or do we just, <laughs> are, are, do we, no, we uh, just wrap this up with it? So long. See you next month. I think we'll stay llama free. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, Cheers, mate. Take care. Jim Roller, our North America editor there, sharing a few thoughts about the Daytona 24 Hours classic. And it's uh, it's quite something to to be there i'm only sorry that i couldn't get there this year but hey ho these things happen we've talked a bit about christmas presents we've talked about some of the things that you might like to get on your list now this is a hugely subjective view i understand that and therefore i'm just going to give you a few of the ones that paul and i both liked perhaps you'd like to share some of your thoughts and you can do that go to at hist racing news we'd be very keen to hear of some of your thoughts about the books that either we've talked about or other ones that you've read during the course of the year the first one i want to talk about and as i say in all the best um reality tv shows these are in no particular order but uh, would be the all-american hero and jaguars racing e-types which is a book by Philip Bingham, and that that's uh, that's all about Briggs Cunningham. Now, I think probably the title says it all that it's the All American Hero and Jackie's Racing E Types. There's at least books in here, and and probably more. And that when you think of Briggs Cunningham, that a full life is probably 
a bit of an understatement, really. You know, he was, he was evidently charming, clever, good-looking. He was unbelievably rich. Uh, and what only is touched on, obviously, in this is that when motor racing lost its sparkle for him, he decided to go yachting. So he had a yacht built. Possibly and, the only yeah. sport more expensive than motor racing. Yes, but he, he, had, it, he had this yacht built. And he entered it in for the America's Cup, and he won that as well. So, you know, that uh, we're talking about a seriously wealthy man who not only was uh, was that, but very committed to all things about about motorsport. The Jaguar bit is, in some ways, um, grafted on, and I don't mean that in any negative sense, because I loved this book. Uh, but you know, he started with Chevrolet Corvettes. Um, he then went through that time with the Cadillacs that he ran at Le Mans. The the two Cadillacs, one in the standard body configuration and Le Monstre, the uh, unbelievably ugly car <laughs> that uh, that they ran there, and then got into Jaguars. He did so many different Jaguars that he. He started with D-types. He then went to the E2A, which was the, effectively the prototype uh, E-type, which Jackie were, were very happy for him to run so that if it failed, they didn't have the ignominy of it being a works entry. <laughs> and uh, you know, some things never change. <laughs> exactly. You know, let's do this under the cover of somebody else doing it. Then went into... E-types, um, and then ultimately to the the lightweight E-types. And it's a great book, love it. Um, it's it's something which, as with all Porter Press productions, that it is beautifully photographed as well as beautifully written, and that there's there's so much in there that you can you can get lost in. So, yeah, certainly that would be one of our ones. So it's available from Porter Press, um, costs 60 quid, uh, but it's a, a great one to do. The next one that that I saw, which I thought was was one I'd like to one, run on my list, comes from Evro Publishing, and that is Shadow, the Magnificent Machines of a Man of Mystery by Pete Lyons, and that's this is obviously all about Don Don Nichols. And for me, this is a great book because it's about, I think it would be unfair to say a flawed genius, but very early on in the book, Pete Lyons, who I respect hugely as a journalist and have done for many, many years, uh, is very clear that perhaps Don Nichols wasn't the easiest of men to get on with. And, that he made as many enemies as he did friends. He has a very, very mysterious history. Um, you start with the fact that during World War Two, he was a paratrooper, point one. He was a pathfinder. So he was the one who went down to put the markers down that the other paratroopers could then go into he he landed on d-day um but was sent out or sent out in the plane from the plane 
in the wrong spot. So he had uh, a fairly difficult time there. He was injured. He was um, he was shot when he landed. He was then taken to a field station where he was shot again in the in the medical tent. Um, once he recovered, he was sent on Operation Market Garden, the Arnhem Offensive, where again he did the Pathfinder route and was uh, was wounded several times before being part of the Battle of the Bulge in uh, in the Ardennes. Ironically, very close to the Spa-Francorchamps <laughs> circuit. But you know, so this is the kind of man we're talking about. He he was involved in some um some let's say intelligence activity we uh, we learn from what pete lyons said and uh, then it goes on to his his history as a race car constructor always wanted to be a constructor and an entrant he's not a he's not a frustrated driver and that he built that ridiculous low-lying can-am car which we've seen a little bit of of in the last few years now it's been restored stands about knee high literally except tiny wheels from what i remember as well that yeah the the book goes in to talk about those because the thing that he had to get was to get firestone to build sufficiently small tires for the very small wheels and that firestone put in a lot of money to that and the the book talks about the uh, the Can-Am cars and then latterly, of course, the Formula One cars that that went on from there. I think probably it's fair to say that Shadow was was never the success that perhaps it deserved to be. And there was obviously some uh, some some highs and some very lows in that as well, and that all of those are dealt with properly within the book there's uh, there's no hold bar holds barred within that so that's uh, shadow magnificent men machines of a man of mystery from evro and uh, that costs 75 pounds the uh, the other one on my first three is uh, the rothko collection by doug nye now most people i think will be familiar with the rothko, rothko collection done by roald goethe and this is just about golf-sponsored cars. He has a collection of over 40. Over 40. That's, golf that's an amazing collection, isn't it? It's, it's absolutely unbelievable. And that it goes from the very earliest times right the way through to, uh, to pretty much modern day, you know, in that we've seen Roald himself driving Aston Martins at uh, Le Mans in in the golf livery as well but this goes right the way from the the very earliest times it also covers things that aren't pale blue and marigold which is <laughs> uh which is interesting it's the things like jackie eeks's brabham that won the um german grand prix which was the golf sponsored car and car- carried golf stickers but it was in the uh, the brabham colors of green and gold so it's things like that. It's uh, also, would you believe, in the collection, there is the huge JW Golf ro- Race Transporter. Yeah. I mean, that you're going to have a collection, have a complete collection. There's nothing more to it than that. It's, uh, it's unbelievable 
what uh, what's in the collection. I think the thing for me about that particular book is that because each car gets its own story, and they're all kind of three, four pages long, with a bit of history of the car, um, where perhaps where it is, you know, where it's been, and then where it is in the collection, and what's what's happened to it since. You can pick it up and put it down quite easily. I've I found that it was the perfect book to read over breakfast. That you know you've got you've got a ten minute read, and then you can put it down until tomorrow. So it's uh, it's a lovely lovely book. Um, this again is a Porter Press book, uh, seventy five pounds. The Rothko collection by Doug Nye is um, is that one, and those are my first three now. Paul, you've had a you've had a look at, at a, a few as well. You have, yes. And you know, I'm a great man. I like I like detail. I like really to get into a story. And you can't ask for more than that one. The uh, Formula One car by car series of books that Peter Hyam has been producing over the years, and we've had the 1960s, the 1970s, and the 1980s. And but recently it came out the 1950s, so a little bit of a rewind. It almost came as a little bit of a shock actually to uh, open one of these books and see so many pictures in black and white. But of course, that's the era, and of you know, you, this really does take you through the 1950s, and it's exactly what it says. There is every you know details of every car and the story, a little bit of a story behind every team that actually ran in the uh, World Championship from 1950 to 59. So you actually have a little piece on each season, and then it just goes through it team by team, and you realise that really you know the history of the sport and how it goes back in this when you got right at the start you got pictures of Giuseppe Farino and Alberto Ascari in cars going right up to the Coopers at the end of the 50s and how the transition through there and of course on the cover we've got a uh, Maserati 250F which is the one car that actually raced I think in every single race of the two and a half litre Formula One formula that was actually through most of the 50s and into the 60s but this is a tremendous book how all of these photos were sourced I've just opened the book at random now and I've got a picture of um, if I could pronounce it correctly the Philippe Antosola and Eugene Chabot Lago Taubo never <laughs> even heard of either of those gentlemen before I'm sure they're very nice gent guys and had a very nice race but yeah, you know, there's three pictures of them that have been tracked down at different race meetings in the cars. And it is actually, if you like that level of detail, it is fantastic. Even if it's not the 50s that grabs you and you grew up watching Formula One in the 60s or the 70s or even into the 80s, you youngsters, you. <laughs> Find the volume that is your, you open it and it just brings back so many memories, fantastic books. And the diligence and the patience to sit and put these sort of this level of detail together is the sort of thing that I can only admire. And again, that's available from Evro. So uh, again, visit the Evro publishing website and you can get all the details of Formula One car by car 1950 to 59 by Peter Hyam. Paul, what's next on your list? The next one for me is part of the Great Cars series, uh, which has encompassed all sorts of wonderful cars. And these are about the autobiography of a particular car. This is the uh, autobiography of the Shelby Cobra, Cobra uh, CSX 2300. Now, it's, it's one of only five cars that was were built and so therefore it's it's kind of kind of impressive anyway um it's it's the history of the car but it's also the history of 
the project, I suppose you'd have to call it, and the whole um, Cobra project from start to finish. So that it starts with the early days with the relationship with AC cars in Thamesdit and in, in just outside London, and goes right the way through the battle with the Ferrari GTOs and the Aston Martin project cars and uh, exactly what it did. It talks about this as being one of the cars that uh, that competed all over the world and that because there were so few of them, they uh, they are very clearly tracked. And people talk about, you know, the, the 37 uh, Ferrari GTOs, 250 GTOs, um, that there's only five of these. So it's it's unbelievably uh, detailed. It's a great read. I, I love these books because they are, without doubt, um, they're right up your street, Mr. Jurd, because they're very, very anoraki, but in a in a very nice way. Um, and there's lots of lots of great stories. There's lots of interesting stories that you didn't necessarily know. Um, so yeah, thoroughly recommend the. Uh, I have to I have to battle here with myself because when I was growing up, when these cars were current, the UK pronunciation was a cobra, and that they were always AC cobras, and that it's only really since the historic movement really took flight, which is the last sort of twenty years or so, that that the American pronunciation of Cobra has uh, has come to the fore. But it's an American car, so I'm happy to call it a Shelby Cobra. Um, and it's a it's a great book. Thoroughly recommend it. Again, a Porter Press book at £60, available from porterpress.co.uk. Just to reiterate that if you've got any favourites that you'd like us to feature, then just let us know on at hist racing news and we'll certainly have a look at any of those um your next one paul yeah um yeah you mentioned anoraks i think they're very good things to have this time of year thank you very much <laughs> but yep. yeah nicky lauder his competition history by john saltonstall who's a gentleman i was actually fortunate enough to interview at the autosport show back in january of this year which uh, seems a lifetime ago now again a book which does exactly what it says on its cover it is every single event that nicky lauder competed on right back from the uh 15th of April 1968, what the bad and will luck and hill climb when he went out in a Cooper Mini Cooper S and was such an unknown that in fact they spelt his name wrong in the program <laughs> with louder with an ER on the end. But literally does take you through every race quite often actually coming up with the car number and even the chassis number for the cars. And yes, there's his Formula One career. So we're talking through you know, BRM, Ferrari and then. Obviously, he disappeared for a few years, did his first retirement, came back and was then out in the Brab with Brabham and then McLaren. But it's every single race. We've got the Formula 3, but even things like um, the Kyle Army Nine Hours in 1972 when he was shared a march with Jody Schechter. And the, do you remember the Pro Car Series with the BMW M1s, Paul? Oh, yes. Love that. Love that. Series. Can you imagine that these days, letting the whole field of Grand Prix drivers let loose in sports cars that they didn't have to worry about repairing? <laughs> before every Grand Prix. It was just carnage mostly, but uh, yeah, Lauda took that very seriously and was very, very successful in that. So fantastic work of love from Saltershaw, who's obviously a big 
Louder fan, and uh, obviously a book made all the more poignant by Nicky Louder, who actually, of course, died this year—a sad loss for all of motorsport. So that's uh, Nicky Louder, his competition history by John Saltestor. That is again Evro from Evro Publishing, and uh, sixty pounds. The uh, the final book in in this particular list uh, is from Simon and Schuster, and it is called A Race with Love and Death by Richard Williams. Now, I can forgive it, the title. I can forgive that because it is about uh, the the life story of Richard Seaman and just, uh, just what he was about. Now, I have to be honest that I didn't know much about Richard Seaman, that I had assumed that he was a bit of a hot shoe superstar in the Mercedes team, and that he'd raced an ERA and a Riley before that. I didn't really know too much more about it. And this is probably as much a view about the social mores of the 1920s and 30s as it is about anything else. That uh, It tells the story of the, the, the way that he grew up, that his, his mother was a, a sort of early day hyacinth bouquet it turns out because she came from a very humble beginnings she married well as they used to say um twice to very wealthy men and i mean very wealthy men uh and that uh, when her first husband died who was richard's father uh that she was doting completely on her only son uh he kind of abused that a bit um, in that he not only got her to buy him um, a racing car, but also then to pay for running it all over Europe, uh, that he he drained her dry, I think it would be fair to say, that he he persuaded his stepfather to buy him or to buy the family what we would now call a stately home for him to inherit when uh, when his his parents or his stepfather and, mo- and his mother died that, so that's thinking ahead isn't it yes you know and, and this huge sort of 20 bedroom house with a gazillion acres that uh, that was was bought specifically for him to live in and to inherit that it's it just doesn't bear thinking about the thing was, he went to Germany to drive for Mercedes. Now, as I say, I'd always thought of him as being the the superstar driver, and he wasn't. That he his first two years were actually very largely as a reserve. That Mercedes had more drivers than they needed, and so consequently, at the end of his second year, he went and said, "Look, either you use me or." Um, there's no point in me hanging about and so they used him a bit more but he was never the the superstar that perhaps I'd grown up knowing uh, now you have to think about this that this is in the late 30s so it's after the rise to power of the National Socialist Party and of Adolf Hitler that he is driving cars with a swastika on the side um, and that he has this uh, very 
moneyed and privileged background in the UK, there was a, there were a lot of pressures there. Then it was made even worse because he fell in love with and married a very young teenage bride by the name of Erica Pop, and her father was the man behind BMW. So he was very wealthy. They they got married. Um, I won't say in secret because it wasn't in secret, but they got married very, very much against his mother's wishes. They bought a house in Germany. They lived in Germany and that he was effectively cut off from the family in virtually every way. By now, his stepfather had died as well. So his mother, in a fit of pique, cut him off from all of his inheritance, from everything. Uh, but by now he'd married into the BMW family, so that was no <laughs> no bad thing. <laughs> Obviously, it was in the genes. Um, and then, of course, the the fateful day when he uh, he drove at Spa in 1939, and that uh, he lost the car on what was then called Clubhouse Bend. It's that bit between Burnhamville, uh, not between Burnhamville, um, between Blanchiment and what we now know as the bus stop chicane, very much where the old bus stop was. And he lost the car in the wet um, that he, he crashed sideways into a tree and the car caught fire. So he was incapacitated and couldn't get out. He was alive when they pulled him out and sadly the one one of the very few things he said when he was in hospital for the few hours before he died was i made a mistake i was driving too fast um but he he died and that there is a, a chilling photograph in the book of the wreath that was sent to his funeral which was in the uk which uh was huge i mean it stood six feet high from Adolf Hitler, and uh, and you think you have you know so many highs and lows in such a a short life because he he died in in June 1939, and that uh, he, it was only a matter of months then until the September when the UK and Germany were at war, and that to have seen that many things happen and still only be 26 when he died was uh was incredible it's a very very good book i say it's as much about the social social world of the 20s and 30s comes from simon schuster um and uh it's it's not a big book it's a what you might call a standard size book hardback and only 20 quid so uh certainly something worth uh worth putting on that on that christmas card list but we'll be running various different ideas for christmas gifts uh on our facebook page over the course of the next few weeks and um and also at hist racing news so keep a, a good eye open for that and i think you you had a an off-the-wall idea about christmas gifts didn't you paul 
Yeah, just very quickly. I am. Um, yeah, just if, if anyone does want a gift or a suggestion that um, their significant other could give them, um, just try Googling motorsport socks. You get a whole variety. There are some there of classic liveries and everything. There's also the option to have your socks with uh, the face of Charles Leclerc all over them. Can't say I'm going down that road myself. But yeah, you know, you can have your golf livery socks, your your uh, Lotus socks. There's a huge range of choices there, and uh, yeah, very dapper. You can look on Boxing Day wearing them. Well, that's a thought, and that's that's solved my worries about what I'm going to buy you for Christmas. So that's that's fine. Well, there next goes the month. Surprise. <laughs> next month, we're going to be looking at what I think we could call the very last road race Grand Prix, and that's the 1957 Grand Prix of. Pescara, where Fangio, Moss, Brooks, Brabham fought it out over the 16-mile public road course, and that we'll be looking at that. Uh, Jim Roller will once again be back to give us a perspective on what's happening in the US. Do take the time, please, to follow us on at histracingnews.com or on the Historic Racing News Facebook page. But uh, from Paul Jurd and from me, I think that's everything that we can talk about for this month. But for now, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him.